Bibles, and I hope you do, please open to Proverbs chapter 12, Proverbs chapter 12, as we continue our study through the Old Testament, and currently in the book of Proverbs. The title for this evening is The Righteous in Contrast to the Wicked. The Righteous in Contrast to the Wicked. As we started last week, we saw that that Solomon started to do that. He started to contrast or compare the righteous with the wicked. And here tonight we have short, helpful verses to be meditated on. And notice how many times as we go through the chapter night, we notice the word but is used in Scripture. Solomon used it, the word but, more than anybody else. Nobody used the word more than Solomon did. It's a small word. But it's the point of, a, of the contrast that made it the contrast huge. In other words, the righteous will end up in heaven, but the evil will end up in hell. And I'm just using that as an example to use that word in, in, in comparison. And in proverb after proverb, precept after precept, picture after picture, con- contrasts uh, are, are, are quickly set before us here. So let's begin now with Proverbs 12 with verse 1. And Solomon said, Whoever loves instruction loves knowledge, but he who hates correction is stupid. Now in the King James Version, the word is brutish. He is brutish, but when you look at the meaning of the word brutish, it means stupid. And so in the New King James, it it translates it as, as brutish or stupid, whichever word you want to use. So he he talks about the wise man here in verse 1. And what Solomon is saying, that a person who refuses constructive criticism has a problem with pride. And there's a lot of times that we don't want to hear somebody give us constructive criticism if we've, you know, got our own minds made up about something. Our pride gets in the way and says, hey, you know, you don't need to tell me, I already know. So the word instruction here refers to discipline or correction. Nobody wants to be disciplined. Nobody wants to be corrected. That's our nature. A lot of people resist the rod of correction. And that rod might be whatever means God chooses to use. But David didn't resist the rod of correction. David was a wise man. He had a heart for God. He had a heart after God. He loved instruction, which means David loved knowledge. Now, David, he was a sinner like anybody else. David sinned like anybody else. We all do. And we know David's story and his sin with Bathsheba. And he continued to sit on the throne like nothing happened. Yet his conscience was driving him crazy. And by the time the Lord sent Nathan, the prophet, to to David, David was more than ready to receive instruction. And after Nathan had told David of his sin, David thought about what Nathan had said. David, who loved correction and instruction and being a wise man, thought about God's ways with his sin. And after David received uh, correction, he received knowledge. And this is what he wrote in Psalm 32, verse 1 and 2. David said, blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Joab, on the other hand, uh, David's general and nephew, 
he was unrepentant. Now, now Joab had lived with David for years. Joab sang the praises, the psalms that David wrote, but it seems like, like, like Joab didn't learn a thing from, from David. He was spiritually brutish. He was spiritually stupid. No better than an animal in the field. David found forgiveness and he found life, but Joab found shame and he found death. And in the end, Joab, hearing about Adonijah's execution by King Solomon for joining Adonijah's rebellion, though he could be saved by making, uh, thought he could be saved by making some religious gesture, he grabbed onto the horns of the altar, thinking making that, 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 that move, that, that, that gesture, he thought that, that by grabbing the horns on the altar that, that it would do him some good with God. And many times we do things in our own wisdom, in our own understanding, thinking that it's going to do us some good with God. But it didn't do anything, and it didn't do anything for Adonijah. He was dragged away and he was executed. In Job chapter 22, verse 17 through 7, uh, 15 through 17, Job said, Will you keep to the old way which wicked men have trod, who were cut down before their time, whose foundations were swept away by a flood? And they said to God, Depart from us. What can the Almighty do to them? They said to God, Depart from us. We, we don't want anything to do with you. What can you do to us? And of people, and of people, you know, people have to learn or be, to be taught the hard way, unfortunately. That's the way it is with a lot of people. They learn the hard way or they're taught the hard way. And, and by the way of, of the rod, you know, but not David. David was a wise man and he had a heart for God. He loved instruction, so he loved knowledge. Verses 2 and 3. Again, these are contrasts. Remember, verse 2 and 3. A good man obtains favor from the Lord, but a man of wicked intentions he will condemn. A man is not established by wickedness, but the root of the righteous cannot be moved. So Solomon here is talking about a bad man. Next, Solomon describes here a bad man. He has, a bad man has no favor with the Lord. And before Solomon says anything about the bad man, he has something to say about a good man. The Bible says in, in Acts eleven four twenty four that Barnabas was a good man. Now, the Bible doesn't say that about a lot of people. But Barnabas was the kind of man that people would die for. Now, this means when it says he was a good man, this means he was a man of great character. He had compassion. Matter of fact, his nickname was the son of consolation or the son of encouragement. That's what Barnabas meant. Now, Barnabas didn't cling to his possessions. Barnabas felt that what he owned really wasn't his. He sold them and he gave the money to further the Lord's work in Jerusalem. Proverbs 12, 3, Solomon said, A man shall not be established by wickedness. Jeroboam, Solomon's son, was the last king to sit on the throne of the northern kingdom of Israel. And those who followed Jeroboam were a sorry bunch of people because he was wicked. Even though he was good, uh, uh, godless and he was wicked and he was able enough and powerful and had ability and, and determination, that alone cannot establish a kingdom. It can't establish a business. It can't establish anything else. Only God can do that. That's why our country, our government is such need of God in its decision-making processes. 
And those who ignore God may seem to prosper, but nothing can really be permanently established by wickedness. A wicked man will not be established. That is, and that means he won't be successful because a wicked man is up and down. They're here and there. They're all over the place. They're unstable. But the godly will have deep roots founded in the Lord. The psalmist said in chapter 1, verse 3, He shall be like a tree, speaking of the man with godly roots or the woman with godly roots. He or she will be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he or she does shall prosper. Verse 4, An excellent wife is the crown of her husband, but she who causes shame is like rottenness in his bones. Solomon speaks now in verse 4 about a glad man. And he says, the man who has a good wife is a happy man. He's a blessed man. The word virtuous is used in, King, in the King James Version. Virtuous means strength, power, able, able valiant, valor, riches, substance, wealth. That's, that's the blessing of a man who has a, a, a virtuous wife. And by the word virtuous, we're to understand a woman of power, energetic and vigorous, a woman of great aptitude and ability, a woman of sharp knowledge and able to manage a household and other affairs. And, and I'm blessed to say that's the kind of wife that I have. She's all of the above. The scriptures say El- Elkanah had two wives. He was married to Hannah and to Panina in 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 2. Now, the proverb here is illustrated by the story of Elkanah, who was married to Panina and, and Hannah. Panina was the, was the kind of wife who embarrassed a husband. Panina had a mean spirit and she had a mean tongue. And he must have said to himself, what did I ever see in her? Maybe she was pretty. A cynic once said that beauty is more important in a woman than brains because men can see better than they can think. So, you know. Panina had a lot to be thankful for because her husband was, was a good man. He was a godly man and he didn't neglect her. Even though she had children, she was a, uh, which was a sign of approval in those days and acceptance, she was still very bitter towards uh, Hannah and very envious of her. Now, Hannah, on the other hand, she didn't have any children. And Panina constantly reminded Hannah of the fact, you don't have any children. And again, in that day, you were looked down on as a woman if you didn't have children. And, and Panina made Hannah's life miserable. And that's what Panina wanted to do. So with Panina's meanness and malice, there wasn't any peace and quiet in that home. And with Panina's temper and Hannah's crying, the house was in continual chaos. And, and, and Panina was rottenness in Elkanah's, Elkanah's bones. But in contrast to Panina, Hannah was a virtuous woman. She was a crown to her husband. Though she didn't have any children and she was miserable and she was tormented by Panina, Hannah knew what to do. And that was pray. She prayed, Lord, please let me have a son. And God blessed her. And God gave her a son, Samuel, who she gave back to the Lord. She dedicated to the service to him to the service of the Lord. And she praised God for what he was doing in her son's life. And then she had other children. 
You see, the difference between Panina and Hannah was their disposition and their mouth. Panina used her mouth to irritate Hannah, while Hannah, on the other, on the, on the other hand, used her mouth to pray and seek God. Panina's bad attitude and mean mouth turned their home into a hell, while Hannah's holy character made it a heavenly place. Verses 5 through 9 speaks of a madman, beginning with verse 5. The thoughts of the righteous are right, but the counsel of the wicked are deceitful. The words of the wicked are, lie and wait for blood, but the mouth of the upright will deliver them. The wicked are overthrown and are no more, but the house of the righteous will stand. A man will be commanded or commended according to his wisdom, but he who is of a perverse heart will be despised. Better is the one who is slighted but has a servant than he who honors himself but lacks bread. In other words, Solomon says here, the plans of the godly are just. They're right, they're fair. But the advice of the wicked is treacherous. The words of the wicked are like a murderous ambush. But the words of the godly save lives. He says the wicked die and they disappear. But the family of the godly will stand firm. And a sensible person wins admiration, but a warped mind is despised, Solomon says. He ends with this, with, in, in verse 9 by saying, Better to be an ordinary person with a servant than to be self-important but have no food. In verses 5 through 9 here, we have a picture of a man who acts like he's crazy. No common sense. He thinks of depravity. He's violent. He thinks of revenge and, and vanity. He thinks of are, is better than morality. And that's because verse 8 says, notice he has a perverse heart. The word perverse here in verse 8 means to deviate from the proper path. So what is it that makes a man despise? It's not because he's poor or because of unknown circumstances or misfortune. It's the perverse spirit that he has. First, he thinks that depravity is better than morality. Notice it says in verse 5, the plans of the godly are just, the advice of the wicked is treacherous. Next, Solomon deals with the foolishness of thinking that violence is better than morality. In verses 6 through 7, he says, the words of the wicked are like a murderous ambush, but the words of the godly save lives. The wicked die and disappear, but the family of the godly stands firm. Next, in verse 8, he dealt with the foolishness of thinking that revenge is better than morality. He says in verse 8, a sensible person wins admiration, but a warped mind is despised. And then lastly, in verse 9, he dealt with the foolishness of thinking that self-deceit is better than morality. He said, it's better to be an ordinary person with a servant than to be self-important but have no food. You see, the man who has a servant is better in terms of material things, in terms of well-being. The man isn't noticed much, but you know what? He has a servant. So he's better off than the man who boasts of his, you know, his, his, his pedigrees and his titles, but he's on the verge of starvation. Verses 10 through 12 speaks of the working man. A righteous man regards the life of his animal, but the tender mercies of the wicked are cruel. He who tills his land will be satisfied with bread, but he who follows frivolity is devoid of understanding. The wicked covet the catch of evil, men, but the root of the righteous yields fruit. Solomon says that a righteous person is kind towards animals. 
And he considers them, that is, animals, as God's creation. Somebody who's mean and cruel to animals is not really a righteous man, according to verse 10. Then Solomon spoke about work in verse 11. And this proverb shows two men. One is a worker, the other is a wanderer. A wanderer. The first man gets up in the morning, he has breakfast, he puts on his work clothes, and he works in the fields from sunup to sundown. Solomon was emphasizing the results of hard work. It says, that man who works hard, he shall be satisfied with bread. In other words, he will earn a living. It will pay off for him. The second man he speaks about is the one who rolls over in bed. He hits this snooze button a dozen times. He sleeps away the morning. Then he gets up. He sits on the edge of the bed. He scratches his head. He sits a little while longer. He yawns. He gets up. He takes his time eating. A friend stops by, one of the vain persons that's mentioned here in this verses. Vain persons speaking of evil men. That's what Solomon is talking about. They talk, they laugh about silly things. They don't have any plans for tomorrow. And Solomon, in writing about this guy, his emphasis was the reason for his irresponsible behavior. He's void of understanding and he's just ready to follow vain people. The wanderer. The wanderer doesn't use any more sense in choosing his friends than using his time wisely. Solomon says, woe to that man when the hard times come. Because he hasn't planned his life. He hasn't planned on on, on how to survive. And without money or skill, he's going to find his days shortened and he's going to find them full of misery. Then in the first part of verse 12, he speaks about integrity. In other words, the wicked man wants what's caught in the net of the evil man. In other words, thieves are jealous of other people's materials, other people's possessions. Verse 13. The wicked is ensnared by the transgression of his lips, but the righteous will come through trouble. In verse 13, Solomon speaks about a saved man. Solomon says the wicked are trapped by their own words, by the things that they say. Their words turn around to bite them. But he says the godly man escapes this kind of trouble. Because Solomon was a judge, he must have seen this principle at work every day. All Solomon had to do was let the person talk. And that's all you have to do, just let a person talk. And sooner or later, they will say something that would either convict or clear them. Dishonest people who twist the facts to back up what they say, they're likely to be trapped in their own lies. The truth, on the other hand, the truth will always win out. The just man, the righteous man, he has nothing to hide. And that gives him a big advantage because he has no reason to lie. Lies always lead to more lies. It's harder to tell a lie than it is the truth. Because as you lie, guess what? You have to keep changing that lie. You have to keep building upon that lie. It never ends. But when you tell the truth, it's said and done. There's no reason to lie. And then the liar ends up having a plot. All right, he has to make a plot. He he stresses out, man, what did I say? And he has to go back and say, man, what did I say? And, And he has to juggle things around until he can't keep them straight anymore. He he can't remember what he said and what he didn't say. and, And sooner or later, he blows it. But the just just man's words, they're true. But for somebody who always tells the plain and honest truth, they give a solid defense. 
If you're always having to defend yourself to others, maybe your honesty isn't what it should be. Verse 14. Solomon speaks about a satisfied man here in verse 14. A man will be satisfied with good by the fruit of his mouth, and the recompense of a man's hands will be rendered to him. In other words, wise words bring many benefits, and hard work brings many rewards. Here Solomon applied the law of sowing and reaping to our words and and our works. Sooner or later, our words and works are going to come home to roost. The things that we say, if they're lies, they're going to come back and they're going to bite us. But if we're telling the truth, we're good. We don't have to defend what we say. We don't have to lie about anything because we've told the truth. Our works too. If we're working wickedly or we're working uh, unrighteously and, and we're cheating, what we, it's, it's going to turn around and it's going to bite us. It's going to get us. But our, if our work is fair and honest, nobody can say anything about it. So again, Rehoboam was an example of this. As a, 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 again, now, a sensible man, Solomon talks about in verses 15 through 16. Notice, verses 15 and 16. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes. But he who heeds counsel is wise. A fool's wrath is known at once, but a prudent or wise man covers shame. So now Solomon speaks about a sensible man here in verses 15 and 16. Rehoboam, again, Solomon's son. He refused to take the wise counsel from the older men when he took the throne. And, and he wouldn't listen to the, the advice of the wiser men. He listened to the younger men that, that he grew up with. And that resulted in his own downfall. It resulted in a civil war in his nation. For example, when Solomon told Shammai to build a house in Jerusalem and live there, he said, do not step outside the city or go anywhere else. He said, because the day that you do so, as, as, the day that you cross the Kidron Valley, you know, you're going to surely die and your blood will be on your own head. And so for a while, it seemed like Shammai had learned his lesson and he had become a good law-abiding citizen but he seemed to be irritated being under house arrest and after three years two of his servants ran away and they'd rather find protection with a pagan king king Achish of Gath than stay another miserable day serving Shammai so when Shammai found out he was really angry and when he found out where they had gone he went after them And he found them in Gath and he brought them back. But you know what? His success didn't last very long. He was called in by Solomon who read his sentence to him in 1 Kings 2.40. And a few minutes later he was executed because he didn't listen to Saul. If Shimei would have been a sensible man, he would have swallowed his pride, his resentment and his anger at his servants because they ran away. If he would have submitted to the disgrace of being under house arrest and just accepted the shame as something that he had brought upon himself, he would have been fine. If Shammai had been a sensible man, he would have covered his shame by being thankful to David and Solomon for their grace that they didn't kill him way before this. And if Shammai had allowed the miracle of grace to change his nature, in time his shame might have been forgotten and his servants might have been blown away at, again at his newfound compassion for them. Instead, Shammai resented David and Solomon and the grace and the goodness that they showed him. 
Shammai couldn't cover his lack of compassion toward his servants. It just ate him up until it killed him. Fools are self-confident. And we must, always be, we must always be open for counsel. A fool will learn from his mistakes and listen to advice. But a fool never does. We must always be open to counsel. You know, when someone annoys you or insults you, it's a natural thing to retaliate. But you know what? It doesn't solve anything. And it only encourages more trouble. Instead, answer slowly and quietly. And your positive response will get positive results. Proverbs 15, 1. Listen to what Solomon said. Wise counsel. He said, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Isn't that the truth? The harsher your words are when you talk to somebody, the louder you raise your... It just makes things worse. The other person gets, gets angry, and the next thing, you're both shouting at each other. A soft answer will turn away that wrath. It will diffuse the situation. But harsh words stirs up anger. Solomon said in Proverbs 25, 15, Patience can persuade a prince and soft speech can break bones. Soft words diffusing the situation rather than speaking harsh words and stirring up people's anger. Verse 17, Solomon speaks about perverted words. Verse 17, He who speaks truth declares righteousness but a false witness deceit solomon had a lot to say about the tongue and so did james he devoted james devoted a whole chapter chapter three to the evil of of how we can use our tongue the tongue is abusive and it's powerful the tongue has the power to explain the tongue has the power to forgive and the tongue has the power to praise the tongue has the power to build up or tear down. And remember that the next time you, you, you're talking to somebody. Do you want to build them up or tear them down? The tongue has the power to heal or discard. Do you want to heal somebody or scar them? The tongue has the power to help or hinder. Do you want to help or hinder that person? There are special dangers, man, that are just waiting for the worldly man. Many sins are sins of the tongue. Things that we say. And you know what, things that we wished we could take back, but we can't. And many times they do irreversible damage. We leave a scar many times on some of the mean and ugly things that we say to one another, to a husband and to a wife. Verse 18, Solomon speaks about piercing words. Verse 18, there is one who speaks like the piercings of a sword, but the tongue of the wise promotes health. Piercing words. Solomon says, some people make cutting remarks like a sword. But the words of the wise, they bring healing. By your words, you can cut a person to pieces. And some words can cut like a sword. And people use their tongue sometimes like a sword. Just slashing people to pieces, cutting other people to pieces. Or the tongue can be used as a power to heal. The person who's discouraged, that person who is broken, words, the right words can bring such healing to them. And by your words, you can bring healing, you can bring comfort, and you can bring encouragement. 
You know what? And it's so important when we speak to others that we use words that edify. That is, we use words that build them up. Words that heal rather than cut and destroy. Verse 19, Solomon speaks about permanent words. Verse 19, the truth, the truthful lip shall be established forever, but a lying tongue is but for a moment. Truth is always timely. In other words, there's never a wrong time to tell the truth. It applies to today and it applies to the future. Because the truth is connected with God. God is truth and God, God's character and God's attributes, they never change. That's the wonderful thing about God. We know who God is and we know who he's always going to be. God never changes. The Bible has withstood the test of time. God's word has, has gone through all kinds of, of battles. Many have tried to stamp out the word of God. Right now in this country, they are trying to stamp out the word of God. They don't want the word of God in the schools, in the government. They don't want it, period. Why? Because it's truth. People do not like to hear the truth. They want to hear good things. They want to hear nice things and and fun things. God's word is truth. And sometimes the truth is not fun. The truth is, it it can be painful, but we need to know the truth. Paul said to speak the truth, do it in love. But sometimes it doesn't matter how you tell the truth, it's not going to be received well. The Bible is with us today because it's God's word and you cannot destroy the truth. You cannot get rid of the truth because it's it's God, It's, it's who he is. You can trust God's word to guide you always. Verse 20 through 21, Solomon speaks about profound words. Verse 20 through 21. Deceit is in the heart of those who devise evil, but counselors of peace have joy. No grave trouble will overtake the righteous, but the wicked shall be filled with evil. Profound words. They give peace. In times of evil, in the face of evil. Verses 19 through 21 deal with the tongue. Again, the lying tongue and the lips of truth. They're put in contrast. They're compared to one another. God's word has more to say about the tongue, um, uh, more uh, judgment or on, on the abuse of the tongue than it has anything else on the, uh, as far, or about the use of, uh, of drugs or alcohol. The word has more to say about the tongue More judgment on the abuse of the tongue than it does about the use and abuse of drugs and alcohol. Yet it's interesting that a lying tongue and a gossip can get into church today, whereas a drunkard would be rejected. Verse 22. Solomon again speaks about perverse words. Verse 22. Lying lips, notice, lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but those who deal truthfully are his delight. God hates a lying tongue. It's an abomination to him, the Bible says. God loathes a lying tongue. Listen to Revelation chapter 21, verse 8, what it says. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their place in the lake of fire, which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Isn't that interesting? All the sins listed there that will end up in hell 
all liars will have their part in the lake of fire. A woman said, I only tell lies when they're going to do me some good. And I think that's the way it is with a lot of people. And, and, and I've said it before, how, how, we, how we teach our children to lie. We go to a theater. We go to an amusement park. Hey, tell them you're 12 years old. That way you'll get in cheaper. Well, you know, I'm only 10 because it does us good. You know, we don't have to spend as much money. But what you've done is, is taught your child it's okay to lie in certain situations. And a lot of people think like this. But God doesn't think like that. He hates all lies, even though, you know, even those that we think are going to do us some good. One of the things that should characterize a child of God is his or her truthfulness because God is truth. Then in verse 23, Solomon speaks about prudent words. Notice how much Solomon speaks about words. Proverbs is a really a, a, a great book. It's really a book about communication. Because it speaks about words, lips, hearing, mouth, tongue, over and over and over again. So verse 23. A prudent man or wise man conceals knowledge, but the heart of foolish proclaims foolishness. Solomon says a wise man won't say things that are going to hurt somebody. They're not, he's not going to spread stories that's going to hurt somebody. You've probably been in a crowd of people where some foolish person, uh, this big mouth person, says something that, that casts a negative reflection on somebody else. And of course, they will say that when that person's not present. Now, Solomon says the wise man wouldn't do that. He wouldn't say things that, that cast a negative reflection on somebody else. But the heart of the fool will say things like that. And sometimes it's best not to tell everything that you know. Some things shouldn't be told to everybody that you know. Paul said in Colossians 4, 6, Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. This is so important because, again, like I said, over and over, the Bible speaks so much about how we, how we speak, how we use our tongue, how we use our, you know, God's given us the gift of language. But, you know, again, it can be used as a sword to cut people to pieces or it can be used as a medicine to heal people. That's why Paul said, let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. The manner of speech and language of the Christian should be a practice of grace. It should be in truth. It should be in faithfulness. It should be in sincerity without lying, dishonesty and flattery. And you know what? Flattery is not, is, flattery is a means of manipulation. It's not communication. Our speech should be consistent with the grace of love because God is love. So evil should not be spoken of one another. Nor should there be gossiping, backbiting, or anything said that would injure the character, credit, and reputation of another person. Because it's contrary to love and it's contrary to grace. And God is love and God is grace. And whatever is said should be spoken in the fear of God, that is, in the reverence of God. The reasons why so many evil things pour out of people's mouths is because they have no fear of God. And they don't think they're going to be held responsible for what they say. 
Plus, the speech of the saints should be in a graceful way, with a cheerful and pleasant face, in a friendly and courteous manner, not a negative, rude, and ill-natured manner. This should never be the case. The sense here is that when we do speak, it should be about, about graceful things, and it should be in a graceful manner, so that there's never any room and place for idle talk and idle words. And, and those idle things that we say, those idle words that we talk, we will, will, we will be held accounted for in the day of judgment. Listen to what Jesus himself said in Mark, oh, I'm sorry, in Matthew 12, 36 and 37. Jesus said, but I say to you that for every idle word men may speak, they will give an account of it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified and by your words you will be condemned. That's what Jesus said. That's what all of this means when Paul says that your words are to be seasoned with salt. In other words, grace in our speech is like what salt is to food. Salt makes meat tasty. It makes foods tasty. Uh, Salt is pleasant to the taste when you put it on food. And so is grace. Wise words and holiness, which may be meant by salt. It makes conversation flavorful. It makes our conversation pleasant and acceptable to a spiritual man who takes pleasure in the things of God. So that you know how to answer every man at all times ready to give an agreeable answer in a graceful and acceptable manner to everyone. Verse 24, Solomon speaks about the willing man. Verse 24. The hand of the diligent will rule, but the lazy man will be put to forced labor. Solomon says, work hard and become a leader. Be lazy and become a slave. Diligence and laziness are are contrasted here in verse 27. The idea that a diligent person will rule, it may not mean that he'll become an official, but that he's in charge of whatever his situation might be. Verse 25, Solomon speaks of the woeful man. Verse 25, anxiety in the heart of man causes depression, but a good word makes it glad. Anxiety is fear, heaviness, and sorrow. And it's well known today by doctors and psychologists that anxiety can weigh a person down, literally causes a man to bow down or depress him. But a good word makes it glad. Jesus said in Matthew 6, 25 through 34, he said, do not worry about your life. Someone said the average person is crucifying himself between two thieves. The regrets of yesterday and the worries about tomorrow. And that's so right on. We we are to plan for tomorrow. But you know what? It's a sin to worry about tomorrow. When, When you start worrying about tomorrow, when you worry about the future, you're trespassing because only God can tell you about what's going to happen tomorrow. We don't know. And so much of our worries is about tomorrow. It's about next year. It's about things we have no control over. We allow tomorrow, what Jesus is saying, is that we many times allow tomorrow to rob us of today's blessings. And in the passage, Matthew 6, 25 through 34, there are three words that point the way to get victory over worry. First, we we read the word faith. In Matthew 6, 30, 
Faith meaning trusting God to meet all of our needs. The second word is father in Matthew 6, 32, knowing that our father cares for his children. Third is the word first in Matthew 6, 33. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. Seeking God first, putting him first in our lives so that he might be glorified. So if we have faith in our father and we put him first, he will meet our needs. Anxiety is sin. Because we're saying that we don't believe that God can take care of our daily needs and the details of our life. And Jesus said, don't worry. He said, don't worry. And then when we do, guess what? We're, we're, we're disobeying Christ's command. Don't worry. He says, I've got you. You're in my hands. He says, I know what you need before you even do. I know what you need before you ask for it. Job said to his friends in Job 6.25, how forceful are right words. How powerful are right words. The right words can bring comfort and cheer and encouragement to those who are grieving, those who are hurting, those who have a problem or have bitterness of spirit. We're not to tear down a person who's having problems. And so many times Christians, you know, they mean well, but somebody's going through a difficult time and say, hey, you know what? Where's your faith? Where's your God? The Bible says, well, you know what? It doesn't mean they don't believe in God. It doesn't mean they don't believe in the word of God. But you know what? They're going through a difficult time. And God's word says, you're going to go through, through tribulations. But he said, be of good cheer for I have overcome the world. You know, those are those promises that we don't like underlined. You are going to have tribulations. Through, through many tribulations, you shall enter the kingdom of God, Luke said. We're going to have them. And God uses them for his glory. God uses them so that we can come, come to him and we become closer to him. And, and, and he uses them to bring us to our knees. Not to lay us flat on our back, but to bring us to our knees in a sense that we will come to him. Father, I need you. And we pray. But you know what? Never, never tear down a person who's going through a difficult time. Encourage them. Have a good word for them. God's word. Verse 26, Solomon speaks of the worthy man. Verse 26, the righteous should choose his friends carefully for the way of the wicked leads them astray. A righteous person doesn't just make anybody a friend. He chooses his friends carefully. Deuteronomy 1.33 says he searches out. Ecclesiastes 7.25 says he investigates. But on the other hand, the wicked man, on the other hand, he doesn't care who his friends are. The wicked lead other wicked people astray because they're all on the wrong path. Verse 27. The lazy man does not roast what he took in hunting, but diligence is man's precious possession. Solomon speaks here about the wasteful man. He says lazy people don't even cook the game that they catch. But the diligent man uses, makes use of everything that they find. The diligent man makes wise use of what he has and his resources. The lazy man wastes them. Waste, you know, waste has become a, a way of life for many that live in America. 
We have so much. And we waste so much. All you have to do is look at the yard sales every weekend. Things that we strive to save for and to buy and we polish it and we wax it and we do take care of it. And several months later, here it is. It's, it put a free sign out there on the curb or, you know, hey, five bucks or whatever at the yard sale. Because we're always wanting something new, something, something else. It's a never-ending thing for, for stuff. But that's, that's one of the things of man. Verse 28, as we close, Solomon here speaks of the worshiping man. Verse 28, in the way of righteousness is life, and in its pathway there is no death. For a lot of people, death is a scary subject. They don't like to talk about it. And by talking about it, they think it'll never happen, that it's going to go away. It's an uncomfortable and dark subject to them. But for God's people, it shouldn't be. It should be, it should be a bright passageway to a new and better life. So we have to ask ourselves, why are we, if we are, why are we afraid of death? Is it because of the pain that we might expect? Is it because of the unknowing? The separation from loved ones? The end of all things that we know here in this life? When Jesus resurrected, you know, that's what he did when he, when he was, you know, uh, going around Jerusalem for 40 days. Showing people, hey, look, it's me. They recognized him. Hey, it's Jesus. He recognized them. He called them by name. He was showing that, hey, our relationship hasn't changed. I haven't changed. You haven't. You know what? And in, and in heaven, we're all going to know one another. We close our eyes here and we open them in heaven. It is mind-boggling, but God's word gives us enough detail about the life after death when he resurrected and he showed himself and he told Thomas, touch me, touch me, it's me. God has helped us to deal with these fears and these questions through his word. Death is not final. It doesn't change relationships. Again, it's just another step in the life that we received when we followed him. Jesus told Mary, if you believe in me, Mary and Martha, if you believe in me, I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me will never die. Spiritually speaking, we will leave this earth for heaven. Like I said, we'll close them here and the next time we open them, we'll be staring in the face of Christ in heaven for all eternity and for those who went before us. What a wonderful thought. No more pain, no more sorrow, no more tears. Again, it's, it's, it's such a, a comfort to know that. And Jesus, like I said, there's, there, there's so much in the word and you know what? The thing is, is we focus on the things that we don't know instead of focusing on the things that we do know. And we ask the questions about the things that we don't know instead of saying, hey, I do know this. This I do know. 
Why? Because God has told me so. Father, we thank you again for this, this proverb, Lord, these, these contrasts between the righteous and the wicked, God. And Father, again, it's your word. It's, it's your truth, God. And it's coming from the one who cannot lie. The Bible says he's not a man that he should lie. And that God is truth, and he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. I can wake up today, and I can wake up 10 years from now knowing who God is and that he's never going to change on me. And that's why I can put my full, complete trust in him. Because he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And Lord, we thank you for your wonderful word. And again, it is truth, and many times when truth is told, we don't like to hear it. But we have to take it up with you, Father, because you are truth. And Lord, I pray that these truths, Lord, would, would, would cut to the heart, and that, Father, we would take them for reals, and that, Father, we would examine our hearts. And that we would look at those areas in our life where we need to change, where we need to make things better, make things right. Jesus is our model, not the person next to us or around us. I can always find somebody that I might be better than, but that's not the, that's not the model. We all are to model ourselves after Christ to live like Christ, to look like Christ, to speak like Christ. And he's given us the Holy Spirit to enable us to do that. So help us, Father. Though we fall seven times, your word says you still get us up and you you brush us off and, and you encourage us to keep going forward. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy, Lord. We thank you for your love. And Father, be with your people as they make their way home tonight, God, or if they're going to work or whatever, wherever their destination is. God, protect them, watch over them, God. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.